we come into, Lord, a place of holy ground when it comes to your word that you have given to us. I pray that we might approach it with fear and trepidation, with humility and with eagerness and zeal, desiring to hear from you and, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us and our call as a church, not just as individuals, but collectively as a body. Father, thank you as we think about your body and your church. Thank you for our many brethren in foreign countries who are worshiping you this weekend and even today on this Lord's Day. Father, I thank you for uh, Tim and Tina, uh, Lord, and for their ministry in the Philippines, and I pray that you would bring them back to us safely this Thursday. Father, thank you for the way that you've used them, for the fruitfulness that you've allowed on the field in, in the Philippines. And I look forward, Lord, to great reports about what you are doing uh, through your people in the Philippines, Lord. We ask that you would help us, Lord, even now. Father, through your word, help me to be clear, to be accurate, to preach with conviction, to preach with compassion, and to preach, Lord, as a broken man to broken people. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4. We are this morning just two sermons away from wrapping up the letter of Colossians. This Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to be focusing on verse 18. But this morning, we are in Colossians 4, verses 15 through 17. And the Word of God says this, Colossians 4, 15, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Here in these verses, Paul is transitioning from greetings that he extended to the Colossian believers on behalf of different gospel partners, as we saw the last couple of sermons in Colossians, to now personal greetings on his behalf and very important instructions that he wants the Colossians to give to others in verses 15 through 17 as he closes out this letter of Colossians. You know, back in college, uh, I majored um, in English. Um, I was an English major, and uh, probably because I just loved language and how language works, and I love to write. Um, it's one of my passions to write. But in addition, I, I love to read good books, and I've learned to be more, uh, uh, um, a more avid reader over the years of just good books. And one of the things, I'm sure you would agree if you read a lot, that I've just learned is that a good book usually, usually not in all cases, but has a good introduction and a good conclusion. In the introduction of that book, there's a good roadmap to where the author is, is heading. And in the conclusion, you have a good summary statement with some key takeaways for you to consider from everything that he or she have written. So I've learned over the years not to ignore introductions and especially conclusions. And you know, we often do that in Bible study, don't we? We are studying through a particular book of the Bible. We pay a lot of attention to the body of the letter of that book that we are reading but we fail to pay close attention to the introduction and even more importantly to the, to the conclusion of that particular letter. But if you're a careful student of the Word of God, you've learned as I have not to ignore the end of uh, books of the Bible. 
There's a lot of important instruction given to us. Great nuggets of gold at the conclusion of letters that we should not ignore or take lightly. And I can assure you that the Colossian believers, as Paul was wrapping up the letter and they were reading this and hearing this letter, they did not take the the concluding words of Paul in Colossians um, lightly. I mean, think about it. Imagine receiving such a Christ-exalting letter from the heart of the beloved Apostle Paul. From the heart of a, of a man that they are very familiar with through others, though they've never met him. He is in jail. He may never get out. They don't know if he's going to get out. Um, they know that their beloved Epaphras, one of their own, is there with, with Paul. He's reported to Paul the, the danger of the false teaching that is infiltrating the church at Colossae. I mean, if you're the Colossian church, you're hanging on every word that is written here in Colossians. These, would, these are Paul's parting words for you as a church. And not only that, Paul's parting words, but this is God in, God's inspired word. They believed, by and large, that the words written here were the very inspired words of God. So they knew that the fullness of God's authority was being brought upon them in the things that were written here in Colossians. So here we have Paul's parting words to the Colossian church, which are very, very important They were for them and they are for us, beloved. They contain some some great truths that I think we need to think about as a church. You know, my heart for us, more than anything else, beloved, for Calvary Bible Church, is that Calvary would be known as a Christ-exalting church. That we would be known as a church who, who makes much of Jesus. Not methods, not techniques, not anything like that, not peripheral matters but that we would be a church that would make much of Jesus in our personal and corporate life. And of course, that has flesh to it. But that is my desire, that Christ would be magnified in all that we strive to do. And so I'm always intrigued by what we can learn in God's Word about the type of a church that we ought to be for the glory of God and what we can learn even from these closing verses here. And so the question that I really want to ask from this text, from verses 15 through 17, we'll look at verse 18 next Sunday when we wrap up the book of Colossians. The question that I want to ask is this, how did, how did, these, uh, how did the early church, these believers, keep Christ central as they ministered to one another? We might pinpoint it even more this way. What are the, the body life commitments of the early church that are evident as we look at verses 15 through 17 that allowed them to keep Christ at the forefront, to keep Christ central uh, in the life of the church. I think there are three body life commitments, I call them, here in these verses that I want us to to examine. They are commitments that, that given Paul's closing instructions here, were evidently important to the early church, and they should be important to us. And I believe that they are to our church in particular. Commitment number one that I see from these verses that we need to consider from Paul's parting words is that in the life of the church, of the early church, there was the evident practice of loving partnership. There was the evident practice of loving partnership. That is, these these believers, the early church was committed to what I call partnership ministry, to walking together as a team Not just individualistically, but as a community of redeemed people. And listen, that commitment to loving partnership showed itself, found expression in that they loved spending time together. 
They love being together in community together. Church history would tell us that meeting in buildings did not become a regular practice in the church until about the 3rd or 4th centuries. So what you have in the New Testament um, are, are believers mostly meeting in homes, in households. Some of the examples that we have, of course, are, are in the, in the uh, church at Colossae, Philemon, the master of Onesimus, whom Paul writes to in the book of Philemon, who hosted a, a church in his home, according to Philemon. Also, we have Lydia, who, who hosted the church at Philippi, according to Acts chapter 16, verses 15 and verse 40. We have Mary, the mother of John Mark, um, hosting a, a prayer group, a, a church in her home in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. There was a, a gospel partner of Paul, Gaius, who hosted a church in his home in Corinth. According to Romans chapter 16 and verse 3 and verse 5, Priscilla and Aquila hosted a church in their home as well. And so here in, 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 Col- in Colossae, we also have the same thing. We have believers spending time together in the context of the home. Notice verse 15. Paul wants them to, to greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, which was the neighboring city of Colossae, some 10 miles or so from Colossae. And closely connected with the Colossian church was this church in Laodicea. But he also wants them to greet Nympha and the church that is in her house, according to verse 15. Who is this person, Nympha? This is the only place that this name appears in the New Testament. Was, was this a man or a woman? We don't know. Most likely, this was a, a woman who hosted a church in her home. So Paul, notice, is making mention here of the whole church in Laodicea when he says the brethren who are in Laodicea, but then he singles out a segment of the church of Laodicea, a home church that met in this woman Nympha's home. She must have been well off, having a home big enough to host a, this church in her home, similar to Philemon, Onesimus' master, who hosted a segment of the Colossian church as well. And beloved, this was, this was normal. And natural. So that Paul's instructions that there would be greetings on behalf of each other highlight the fact that this was only possible for him to give them these instructions because they were very familiar with one another. We see this in other contexts in the New Testament as well, where there's this partnership, ongoing partnering going on in the gospel between believers, and they spend time together as a normal practice as a normal, natural overflow of their relationship with Jesus Christ, they understood that they were a community of believers. It was this loving partnership, and it expressed, expressed itself excuse me, in loving hospitality. What is hospitality but, but kindness shown to strangers, to people who you are not familiar with, generally people who, who we do not know. Their loving partnership expressed itself in the practice of hospitality. And in the absence, at least at that time, of buildings, people were, were forced to open their homes. I'm not proposing that we go to house churches. I don't believe that these examples in the New Testament, even in the book of Acts, of describing the early church means that everything is prescriptive for the church today, right? There was, it was necessary for them to meet in homes because of the, the, the spread of Christianity and persecution and so forth. They didn't have the freedom to meet in, meet in buildings, 
So I'm not proposing that we go to home churches, beloved. But a principle that I think uh, arises from here that we need to glean from is that hospitality was, was important and a normal way of life. It was important to them then and it should be important to us now because of the partnership that we share in the gospel. I'm always humbled when visiting missionaries in other countries and perhaps you have as well. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? They give you everything that they have. Everything is available and at your disposal. They open up their homes naturally. It's a special treat for you to be in their homes. It is not a burden to them, but a joy to have you in their home. It is a normal, natural way of life for them. Why? Because when you talk to them, it's very evident that these believers understand that in the grand scheme of things, we are one church. We're one family. They keep the big picture in mind of of the gospel, that grand picture that we are all in different countries and in different places, but we are all the redeemed in Christ, one church. And so they give you everything that they have. They're very hospitable people. See, this highlights the fact that there's a a deeper theological reality which which really undergirds our practice of loving partnership and, and hospitality, right? Deeper uh, theological realities. And we've seen that deepest theological reality that drives us to the practice of partnering in the gospel this way, of opening up our lives and our homes for one another. And that is our identity in Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we've seen in the book of Colossians. This is who Christ is. This is who you are in Christ. Therefore, live this way. And so our fellowship is deeply and indestructibly rooted in who we are in Jesus. And therefore, the fact that we are in union with Christ and with one another. And and the more we understand, beloved, who we are in Christ, the more community and hospitality will make sense to you. The more it will become less of a duty and more of a delight. Less of a burden and more of a joy. Less of something forced and more of something that just flows naturally from your life that does require sacrifice. But at the end of the day, didn't Jesus sacrifice everything for us? It goes back to the gospel, doesn't it? So there must be substance underlying why we practice hospitality and why we reach out to one another and we love one another. And that is the atonement of Jesus Christ. That on the cross, Jesus died for you. And listen, he is the ultimate example of hospitality shown toward sinners. Because were we not estranged from him? Were we not in darkness, separated from God and from his commonwealth and his goodness and his promises? And Jesus was hospitable to us in inviting us into his kingdom. So therefore, we do the same thing with one another. Beloved, apart from those great spiritual realities of the atonement and union with Christ, being around certain people for one another doesn't make sense. We are so different, aren't we? Ethnicities, backgrounds, upbringing, personalities, social standing, whatever. Apart from who we are in Jesus Christ and thus to one another, us hanging out together doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in many cases. Because we are so, so different, beloved. The only explanation for the loving practice of of partnership ministry that expresses itself in hospitality and and reaching out to one another, beloved, is a supernatural act of the gospel in each of our lives. 
And so it is very profound and has a lot, a lot of depth. Our unity amidst our differences, beloved, shows the glory of the gospel. That only in the gospel is it possible for people who are so different in so many cases to actually find common ground in their identity in Jesus. Amen? That's what I'm talking about. So this isn't a forced thing. This is profoundly theological, isn't it? The practice of loving partnership and hospitality, opening up our lives to one another because of who we are in Jesus, you see, first and foremost. So let me ask you, are you a maverick in life and ministry? Or are you a fellow partner with other believers? Working as a team player in in, in initiatives, ministry opportunities that you have. Working alongside of others and calling others to work alongside of you. Are you doing ministry with other people or just doing ministry for yourself and individualistically apart from other people for your own benefit? How are you partnering with other people? Do you find joy in Christian fellowship? Do you find joy in Christian fellowship? Do you pursue it? Do you order your life around it? What about hospitality? Being kind to strangers, people that you're not familiar with, whether they be unbelievers for the sake of the gospel or fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this church who you are not familiar with. How much of your comfort zone are you going out of to invite people that you don't know into your home? In light of the fact that Christ has invited you into his life, Is hospitality a joy and a blessing to you or a drag or a burden? What hinders you from opening up your home to others in the body of Christ, beloved? What hinders you? So there was an evident commitment to the practice of loving partnership. Otherwise, Paul's instructions to greet one another and uh, don't make very much sense. They were familiar with one another. And that found expression in the fact that, they, that they, they were with one another. They spent time together in one another's homes, especially in that context in that day. But secondly, this loving expression was in obedience to God's word. Secondly, the second body life commitment that I want you to see is this. There was a, a high premium placed on submission to Scripture. There was a high premium placed on submission to Scripture in the early church. We know from Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the first report that Luke gives in the book of Acts about the progress of the church and the church booming and exploding after the preaching of Peter and people coming to know Jesus Christ. The first report that we get is that the early church was devoted at the top of the list to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word of God. And all throughout the book of Acts, look it up. Maybe you have already. Look up all of the progress reports when Luke gives you reports as to how the church is doing. It's always, and the word of God kept on spreading. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the word of God continued to mightily grow. It was the progress of the word of God. There was a high premium placed on the word of God and on submission to the word of God. At the end of the book of Acts, what do we find Paul? He is imprisoned and he is preaching the the word of God and the things concerning the kingdom of God. What is Luke trying to tell us? The word of God continued to spread through the apostle Paul. 
High premium, beloved, on the preaching of the word of God. Church history would tell us, wouldn't it? And attest to the fact that when the church has prospered in the history of Christianity, it is when scripture has been valued. There has been a high premium placed on the preaching and the teaching and the application, as we will see, of the word of God. And it's no different here. Paul wants exposure of everyone to the word of God. Look at verse 16. When this letter, this letter being the letter of Colossians, is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Notice here that Paul references two letters. One is the letter of Colossians that he wants the the Laodiceans to read also. It was common for letters to be circulated to multiple churches. But secondly, he mentions another Pauline letter coming from Laodicea that they are to read as well. And circulate. Some have speculated that this letter from from Laodicea is a a lost letter written by the Apostle Paul. Kind of similar to the the third letter of the Corinthians that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. But this is mere speculation. It doesn't say the letter of Laodicea, but the letter from Laodicea that is coming from Laodicea. And I think most likely, I believe that the letter, without getting into all the gory details, mentioned here from Laodicea is none other than the letter of Ephesians, which Tychicus also was going to deliver, which was written around the same time. It was likely a letter, Ephesians, to be circulated as it was typical then and read by all of the churches of Asia Minor. So Paul, note wants both of these letters to be delivered and for them to be passed around and read and taught. And Tychicus was going to be the carrier of both of these letters and Philemon. But notice, Paul wants everyone to get full exposure to Holy Scripture. Not only the Colossians to read Colossians, but also read the letter uh, of Laodicea. And not only the Laodiceans to read the other letter, Ephesians, but also to be exposed to the Colossian letter as well. Don't take this too lightly, beloved. Again, concluding words, highly significant words of what Paul is saying here. This is the word of God. His instructions highlight the high premium that was placed on believers being exposed to the word of God and sitting under the word of God. Think about it. In a time when Bibles, as we know them today, were not really available to these believers. There were scrolls being passed around. These letters were precious to Christians in the the first century. Precious letters to be read. And they understood to some extent or another that when the Apostle Paul wrote, he was speaking on behalf of God. God was speaking. With the fullness of the, the, the authority of God, they were to be hearing the words, the words that, that, that were written in these letters. You know, October marks the 500th year celebration of the Protestant Reformation. A great monumental event, beloved. The key accomplishment from which all else flowed and, and all the crystallizing of, and the clarifying of doctrines. The key thing that happened was that the Bible was put into the hands of the common people. That is the key thing that took place. Beloved, listen, especially you young people, you need to hear this. But all of us, a lot of sweat and tears went into making the Holy Scriptures available to us in precious books like these. 
So that you have the freedom, especially in this country, to open up the Word of God and to, to know God and to delight in God and to taste and see that the Lord is good. And the salvation that God has provided. What a great thing that was. Blood was spilt in order to make the Bible available to us. And why? Because they understood, the Reformers and many of our fellow brethren 500 years ago, they understood, and, and before that, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. God speaks. Isn't that what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and following say? All Scripture is inspired or expired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what does Paul then say in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy? Thus, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all instruction and patience. Let no one disregard you, he says to Paul, to Timothy in another place. The word of God is to be preached and taught and lived out, beloved. In light of a passage like that and this truth, let me ask you this. How much of a priority is Bible reading and intake and, and meditation and memorization and application of the Word of God. How important is it to you as a believer? Do you live like you need the Word of God? Do you live as if, as if b- believing the words of Jesus that, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? That it is through His Word that He sustains you and satisfies you because His Word reveals Him in all of His infinite glory. How much of a priority is it to you? Let me ask you this. How much of a priority is it to you, believer, and to you, family, and to you, individual? How much of a priority is it to you to sit under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God here at the church? Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, during the week, but even in the main event of the week, how important is it for you to sit under the Word of God on Sunday morning when everybody is going to hear the same message propelling us to mission on this earth? How important is it to you? See, more and more, there's this new phenomenon in Christianity. And it kind of piggybacks off of this, the millennials, right? The millennials of today. The young people, that's the generation of young people today. I think I fall under that. But more and more individuals, professing believers, are staying home from church, from corporate worship service. And just staying home and, in some cases, turning on an audio of a particular sermon. In most cases, not listening to the Word of God at all. Because after all, they can just hear the sermon later on, if they ever even get around to it. There's also this new phenomenon where, you know, I I speak to a lot of older couples, believers who have raised their own kids in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And they're just scratching their heads, wondering how it is that so many now young families and young couples who are married and who have babies stay home from church for weeks and months at a time now. Devaluing the corporate worship service or the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. And I'm not talking about, beloved, for medical reasons. If, if there's a medical reason, absolutely, that parent should stay home. But there's this, there's this phenomenon now, where in the olden days, 
as I speak to some of these older couples, after two or three weeks, unless there was a, a serious medical issue, the mom and the dad would be back at church with the newborn baby, worshiping, sitting out in the foyer if she needed to feed the baby. But now couples stay home from, from church for weeks or months at a time. In some cases, professing believers never even return to church. Very interesting phenomenon. It shows the fact that corporate worship service is becoming less and less of a priority or even submission to the Word of God and being exposed to the Word of God. I mean, what do you say as a young couple to some of your predecessors who were faithful in the midst of raising their own families? They didn't make excuses for that. We need to be thinking about that, beloved. What does Hebrews chapter 10 tell us? Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So there's this, this upward mentality of, that he's saying believers need to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because of Jesus who is our high priest. There's this vertical relationship with Christ. But then listen to this, verse 24, And let us consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As long as it is called today, we need to be encouraging one another, being around one another. And beloved, there's a high premium placed on sitting under the word of God and even being other, around other believers who are speaking the truth of the word of God in your life and you simply cannot do without it. Don't pretend that you can. You're deceived if you think that you can live vibrantly as a believer without sitting under the authority of the word of God, even as it's expressed by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where theological realities become very practical, don't they? How important, uh, important it is, beloved. You know, there's a lot of spiritual pride in churches now. I remember a few years ago, there was a professing believer that we knew who would always sleep in on Sunday mornings. I was involved in a youth group, and we would always, youth group was first hour, and then we had corporate service was second hour. We'd show up, and this guy was part of the worship team, and he, some, a, couple, a couple of times, didn't even show up. He would walk in, bloodshot, eyes, just totally sleepy from having over, you know, slept in the wee hours of the night. And I remember him sitting there and myself and, and the pastor at that time coming alongside him saying, hey, dude, you got you to gotta make sure that you get here, man. You got to be here. What kind of an example is that to, your, to the youth where even their worship leader up front doesn't show up on time? And you know what he said? He said, you know what? In these words, and I quote, there is nothing that is going to be said that I have not heard already. I have grown up in this church, very prominent church. At that time, he was about 21 years old. I have grown up in this church. There's nothing that is going to be said that I haven't heard already. So I'll just listen to the audio and I'll be ready for my, for my uh, junior high small group. Spiritual pride, beloved. Spiritual pride. Fast forward uh, 20 years later, the guy committed adultery. 
left his wife with the kids, nowhere to be found now as far as his wife and family are concerned. He's completely walked away from the Lord. That doesn't happen in all cases. There are glimpses of spiritual pride that take place in each of our lives that don't lead to things like these. But that was, that was a huge statement from him and it revealed where his heart was. That he didn't place a high premium on worship and on sitting under the word of God. It wasn't important to him. Well, someone says in here that, you know, that's not me, Pastor Kempis. I'm always here all the time. You know, I read a lot. I read a lot of Bible. I read a lot of books. I'm constantly exposing myself to a lot. I read audio all day long. Let me ask you this question. If you value the word of God so much, do you submit to it? Do you obey it? Do you align your life under the Word of God? Do you do what the Word of God says? Or do you make excuses? You know what? That's just my personality. It's who I am. I'll never change. It's just who I am. Or it's too hard to obey. Or, you know what? I was brought up this particular way. And it's hard to kind of shed that past lifestyle. Or... Maybe you think you've arrived. Maybe you think you've arrived. You know, there was a former member of this church that's moved on now a few years ago. But I remember that person telling me when I was exhorting them about a a key issue that other people were concerned about. I said, you need to work on this particular area of your life. And you know what this person said to me? You know what? Um, At this stage of my life, campus, I am not going to change. I'm pretty set in my ways. He actually said that. Kid you not. You know what? Older saints who've been around for a long time may not articulate things that way, but you may actually believe that in your heart. That you've been walking with the Lord for so many years. Maybe there's a clear biblical directive that's being given to you over and over again. But hey, because you're older, you don't have to obey the Lord anymore. No, you're accountable to God to obey even as an older believer. Yes. Do you submit to the word of God? If you value the word of God, then you will obey it, beloved. You will make the changes necessary regardless of the cost to your own life. And listen, all of it by the grace of God, right? All of it by the grace of God. Next week, we're going to focus on the grace of God, empowering us to live a, a life of obedience. That grace fuels our salvation and our sanctification, beloved. It's all by grace. Being empowered to live a Christ-exalting life. We are able to do that, beloved. But I've spoken to a lot of people who love good teaching. Love good messages. But then you look at their lives and there are no changes. Continue to indulge in sin. Continue to remain in conflict with people. Not resolving matters with other people in relationships. Making excuses. For why they harbor unforgiveness towards others. People in their own family or people in the church. Men who don't apply the word of God. Who continue to not love their wives as Christ loves the church. Who continue to not expose her to the word. Who continue to not engage his kids and train his kids and teach them about God. Whether it's formal or informal conversations. Men who just don't apply the word of God, disengage with their families, disengage with their inner marriage, disengage with their kids. But they love to hear the word of God. I would argue, according to what Jesus said in the Gospels, that you are not hearing the word of God. It's going in one ear and not the other. 
You're not applying it. You're not internalizing it. It's not hitting your affections and your emotions and your attitude so that it flows out until you're willing to obey by grace. Women, wives, who are not submitting themselves under their husband's authority, who do it reluctantly as if it's a burden, who fight with their husbands, who continually push back on things that are not having to do with sin or their husband imposing sin upon them. Women who are not engaged with their kids, who are not seizing upon the opportunity that they have right now to to train up their kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in obedience to the Word of God. Along those lines of, of training our kids, beloved, in obedience to the Word of God, as an act of the fact that we, we place a high premium on the Word of God, as an aside note, listen, with all of the technology, all that the t- technology has done in our day and age, and all the good that has come of, come of it, and the higher uh, ability to be efficient as people because of the technology, because of our sin, beloved, there's been some bad stuff that's happened too, hasn't there? There is a new generation of kids now, growing up in homes, listen to me, who will never know what it's like to have the undivided, undistracted attention of their parents. All these kids will remember is the top of their parents' head looking down on their contraption. That's devastating, isn't it? Devastating. Talk about neglect. I'm not talking about don't ever use your phone. Let's not get legalistic and put, put rules and regulations, beloved, beyond what stands written. I'm talking about the principle of the matter here. What is more important, our devices or people in our home beginning with our home? People are important, right? Lives that will live forever. Souls that will exist for eternity. Sorry to go off on that tangent. But that just shows, that's one example of how we don't apply the Word of God in applying biblical principles with our, in our family life. And that happens in the church as well. All of this because we don't submit ourselves to the clear teachings of the Word of God, beloved, for our good, for our blessing, if we would obey the Lord's instructions. Listen, it's almost as if the goal of, of listening to God's Word now is, is, is entertainment, is that you come in and you feel better about yourself after hearing a message preached to you. We treat the, 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 the scripture and the, and the church almost like we, we treat a headache. You know, we get a headache. When I have a migraine headache, what do I do? I get, grab a couple of excedrins and I pop them in my mouth and that's it. Right? What do we do in the church? We want to feel better. So we come in, we clock in and out of worship service. We clock in and out of our devotion times, right? But we don't follow through with genuine, heartfelt, passionate, zealous worship and obedience to the Lord. We just want to come in and feel better about ourselves. Pop in the the worship pills, the sermon pills in our head so that we feel better for a while. And then we're back to living in the dumps again. There are people who have an insatiable appetite for knowledge. I want to know more. Teach me more. These messages are not profound enough or deep enough. Give me the Greek and the Hebrew, right? People who want to know more stuff, but it never hits the heart, beloved. It doesn't lead to worship. It doesn't lead to love for the Lord and love for other people, to obedience. Listen, 
A true understanding of biblical theology, beloved, must drive us to taste and see that the Lord is good so that we're driven to worship Him. A true understanding of biblical theology must impact your life, your thinking, your attitude, your perspective toward God and who you are in the light of who He is in His infinite glory and majesty. It must impact your outlook of your trials and your sufferings and your words and your actions, your priorities, your goals, so forth and so forth. And that takes purposefulness, doesn't it? To sit down and reflect upon what's being taught, to reflect upon what I'm reading in God's holy word and actually journal and, and spend some time thinking and chewing upon, Lord, what is it that you're teaching me here about yourself? What is revealed here about who you are? And how does that impact me? And what do I need to repent of? And what are those sins that are, you're exposing in my heart that I need to, need to be brought under submission to you? And how do I need to love my brother and sister in Christ all the more in light of what you revealed in your holy word? As well as in the preached word. All of this by the grace of God, beloved. Real change is possible, beloved. God saved you so that you would be different. God saved you so that you would stop living for yourself. God saved you so that you would stop living for the pleasures of sin in this life. Counting this life as, as more worth your time and your resources than what God has to offer in his infinite kingdom that he offers you in Christ Jesus. So we've seen two body life commitments here, these believers from Paul's instructions, the, the practice of loving partnership that expressed itself in fellowship and hospitality. And then secondly, the high premium of submission to God's word. Thirdly, and we'll finish here with this third one, the benefit of congregational accountability. Notice the benefit of congregational accountability. There was a sense in which they, they, they knew they were part of something bigger than themselves. And they worked together. And they were accountable to one another. We see this, right? And even in the practicing of the one another. So they came along. We were called in 50-something one another's in the New Testament to come alongside of one another. But notice what Paul says in verse 17. You, the Colossian church, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Literally, that you might continually fulfill your ministry, Archippus. Who is this guy? Archippus. We, we don't know. In Philemon 2, Paul calls him our fellow slave. Many believe that because um, Archippus is referenced in the book of Philemon, that maybe he was a member of uh, the, uh, Philemon's family, possibly a key leader of the, or the leader of the church that met in the home of Philemon. We can't be definitive or dogmatic about that. That's possible. In any case, whoever he is, he is an important ministry partner. And the exhortation that Paul gives him here writing under the inspiration of, of, of God, is very similar to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Similarly, he wants Archippus to take heed to the ministry given to him by the Lord. What was the ministry? We don't know. We don't know. He doesn't want Archippus to drop the ball, if you will. And as he gives this command in verse 17, there are sort of a threefold lesson for us here in, ver in, in, in verse 17 regarding what I call congregational accountability that we can glean from this exhortation given here. Okay? 
And I think it applies to not just to pastors, but for all of us who are Christians, who are the body of Christ, the church, that we need to carefully consider, beloved. These are sort of three subpoints under that third main point, okay? Take note that in our service, we are preeminently accountable to Christ. To Christ. There's this upward accountability for all of us. Archippus is to, is to take heed to the ministry. Notice in verse 17, which you have received in the Lord. In other words, this is a Christ-given ministry. Ultimately, no one gave this ministry to Archippus. The Lord Jesus commissioned him, and he is accountable to Christ for how he carries it out. He is accountable to the Lord. He's under the scrutiny of Christ. He will have to answer to to Christ for how he carries out whatever that ministry is. And beloved, listen, that applies to every Christian. Not just to the apostles, not just to pastor elders, not just to deacons, but to all servants of Christ. All Christians are servants of Christ. That's how Paul puts it in Colossians 3.24. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Writing to believers. We all are servants of Christ. And this evokes a certain sense of fear that we serve Jesus, but even more, a compelling and joyful passion and desire to please our Lord Jesus. So there's this um, accountability to Christ first and foremost in our service, beloved. Secondly, the second lesson that we learn here is that we are personally accountable to God for our obedience. Personally accountable. Note the command is given personally to Archippus. Take heed. You is the implication. You, Archippus, take heed. The exhortation to obey, to do what God says, is for him specifically, no one can hold Archippus' hand. He is accountable to the Lord to obey. The same is true for us, beloved. Isn't it? What has the Lord called you to in life and ministry? Be faithful to that. If you are a Christian... You are a steward of what God has given you. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says this. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Each believer, he says, each of you have received a package set of gifts, and you are to use them for the service of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's all to be done for the glory of God. And the edification of your fellow brothers and sisters. We are stewards, household managers, beloved, of what God has given us. What we have doesn't belong to us. None of it does. Especially our spiritual gifts. They are for his glory and the edification of others. And what does God require from each of us is is faithfulness in our ministries, beloved. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 says this. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. The idea there is under rowers, human engines, if you will, and stewards, household managers of our master's possessions and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, he says, it is required of stewards, of household managers of God's things that one be found trustworthy, faithful, 
That's what we are required to do, beloved, to be faithful. Well, Pastor, I want to use my gifts, but I just don't know where, where I should start, what I should be doing. Let me give you three quick steps, okay? First, get in the Word and prayer. Get in the Word and prayer. You cannot be spiritually sensitive to what God wants for you in life and ministry if you're not walking with the Lord, pursuing Him in, a, in your daily devotion before Him, worshiping Him, knowing Him. Get in the Word and in prayer. Secondly, get involved under the shepherding oversight of elders who are watching over you, who are caring for you, who are giving you feedback as to your progress. Yes, it's from a man perspective, but they are also why we have been charged to watch over you and to care for you. We can't possibly know what's going on in everybody's life, beloved. But we want to strive to know each of you in a greater way. How much, how helpful is that when you pursue us as well? Thirdly, Get involved in the body of Christ. Just do something, says Kevin DeYoung, when this question is posed to him. Just do something. Serve in some capacity. So that other Christians see you in action and serving, even behind the scenes. And they're like, wow, I really want to affirm you, brother or sister. You're gifted in that area. Boy, the Lord really uses you when you do that. You're really useful and fruitful. See, when we get involved and we're around other people, simply being here from the heart with others and serving, beloved, there's the affirmation from others that watch you. And you know all the more what God perhaps has called you to be and to do. We're not going to play politics in this church. It's not about who you know. Who cares who you know? It's not about manipulation that you do things for, to please somebody's eyes. Uh-uh. It's all unto the Lord, beloved, by, by genuine, heartfelt, spirit-driven service to Christ and to His people, you see. We are called to faithfulness even in that. Third lesson that we learn here. In our service, notice that we are accountable to one another. We are accountable to one another. There's a responsibility that we have to one another. And note, Paul instructs the congregation of Colossians to say to Archippus. Notice that in verse 17. He's exhorting the congregation to command Archippus concerning the fact that he needs to take heed. He needs to be faithful. In other words, we're not just accountable to to God. First and foremost, we are. But we are mutually accountable to one another, beloved. I need the loving accountability of each of you and as a corporate body, and so do you. We are members of one another, inseparable members of one another, beloved. This is so hard for us to understand, right? Because we have such a low view of the church. Such a low view of the church. And we need to think about this just for a few minutes, beloved. This low view of the church because the, at the heart of the reason why we live individualistically and so autonomously away from other people, as if we don't need other people and we don't need the church, is because we have such a low view of Christ and His church. That's why. We are one body, one church, one temple, one family, one household of the faith. That's how scripture, the metaphors that scripture uses to to define us as the redeemed in Jesus Christ. We're not just saved individuals, beloved. We are that first and foremost, or you can't be a part of the body of Christ. Unless the vertical relationship before God is reconciled first. But we are also saved to be a part of a community. We are a living, moving, vibrant organism in the church. Moving together. The common slogans of this is my life. 
This is my family, my business, my prerogative. I can do what I want to do like the song Bobby Brown a few years ago said, right? I can do what I want to do. It's my prerogative. My decision. None of you guys ever heard that song, did you? Okay, fine. I guess you guys were listening to jazz or other things too. I was listening to that worthless music, yes. <laughs> my life, my prerogative, my decision, my money. Listen, those statements need to be left at the door when you come to know Jesus Christ. All right? That's right. You need to leave those at the door. And even when said well-intentioned, they need to be placed in the greater context of the church, beloved. Those things need to be shaped and tempered by the fact that God is most concerned, listen to me, with His church. Jesus' greatest love is His church. Now, in one sense, certainly each of us are responsible for our own lives, for our own families. I am first and foremost responsible to shepherd and lead my family in the same way that you are. Not responsible first and foremost to to shepherd your family and vice versa. But this is not so airtight in the church at the exclusion of others, beloved. It isn't. It doesn't mean that you rule your own life. That no one in the church can tell you what to do or how to live or hold you accountable. This mindset simply does not jive with Scripture, beloved. It doesn't. Listen, as Christians, we don't impose our perspective on God's church. Instead, the Bible, God's divine blueprint for the church, shapes our perspective about everything. Everything in life as believers. It reminds us, the Word of God does, that we as Christians are accountable to God and to His people, to one another. The Bible elevates the church, beloved. The church is is God's holy people, purchased by the blood of Christ. Those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, who have been reconciled to God, are part of the church. We've gained acceptance before God as believers. And are a part of his people by faith in Jesus Christ. And now we are a part of one beautiful living organism, one structure, one building that is growing and living and active and exalting Jesus on this earth. Listen to me, beloved. The church does not exist first and foremost for you. It doesn't. Maybe that is a radical thought for you. You exist for the church first and foremost. The church does not exist for your family first and foremost. Your family exists for the church. The church does not exist to help you personally carry out all of your self-defined goals and agendas that you have. Your goals and everything about everything that you are pursuing are subordinate to Jesus' goals for his church as revealed in his word. Jesus is building his church. I love Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where it says there that, that, that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Even the spiritual forces of wickedness have taken note that it's through the church visibly seen on this earth that God is making his glory known and his manifold wisdom known through his church. Mark it. The church is the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 1.23. It is the bride of Christ. 
Christ is the, the husband of the church, the Lord of the church, the head of the church. He rules and directs his church through his word and the power of the spirit. The church is the beloved bride of Christ, beloved. He died for her. He shed his blood for her, beloved. He loves his church. He is her high priest. He is her mediator. He is her advocate. She is his priority. He desires that his church would be holy like himself in all of her glory presented to him holy and blameless and spotless. And listen to me. He desires that you and I, if we profess to know the Lord, that the church would be our highest priority and that with our families we would serve Christ and his people. Amen? We have such a low view of the church, beloved. Oh, we do. But all of this gives depth to our commitment to one another, that we're accountable to one another, right? What does Christ the Lord expect? Us to be serving Him and serving one another. This high view underlies the congregational accountability, beloved, that Paul calls for here. The Bible tells us that that we are mutually accountable to one another for how we live as well. And so Archippus was accountable to the Colossian church to take heed to the ministry that God had called him and to be faithful, to carry out whatever that ministry was. And you need to hold me accountable, beloved, as your pastor, to be faithful in the ministry that God has called me. And I need to call you as your shepherd to do the same thing. Amen? And you need to call one another. Come alongside of one another. Exhort one another to be faithful to whatever the Lord has called each of us to and to be serving other people. And to be living at our gifts. Listen, the next time a Christian asks, asks you, how are you doing? Don't get all bent out of shape. Seriously. Oh my goodness. As Pastor Brock would put it in one of his sermons, it's like we're sucking on a lemon sometimes when somebody asks us how we're doing. We don't like it. The next time somebody asks you, beloved, how are you involved? How are you plugged in? Take it as, as somebody exhorting you in love, beloved, because they care about you. And of course, the exhorter has to make sure that it's motivated by love, right? Looking to themselves first and foremost, not out of a judgmental or critical spirit. But if it's done in love, and even when you have questions about that, listen and take heed. Don't get all bent out of shape about it. Next time somebody asks you how you're serving, you know, don't have this attitude of, why don't just people just leave me alone? Mind their own business. Let me be. I just want to come and be blessed. Don't make me mad. (laughs) Telling you. Realize, realize your brothers and sisters are called alongside, are called to come alongside of you in congregational accountability because we are part of one church. And when you are suffering and you are not benefiting the body and infecting the body with your gifts and the treasure that God has given to you, then you're hurting the whole body. You understand? You're not just hurting yourself and you're hurting yourself first and foremost, but you're hurting the whole body. You're withholding from the body that which the body can benefit from, beloved. I say these things because I love you. I say these things because the word of God calls us to these things. Amen? Amen. Loving partnership, submission to scripture, congregational accountability. Those are body life commitments that we glean from some of these closing words from Paul's parting words, beloved, loving or important commitments in the life of our church. They need to be there and we need to strive to continue to pursue these. Amen.
Well, there's one final word that Paul has for these Colossians, and you don't want to miss it, verse 18, next week. I've been so impacted. Obviously, being down for a couple of weeks, I had a extra time to be munching on these great truths, and especially verse 18, grace be with you. In one sense, we might say it sums up this whole letter, that statement in verse 18, grace be with you. And I know it's going to be a great comfort and encouragement to all of us. All right? Let me pray for us, and then Tim Adams is going to come up. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the fact that there is nothing that is wasted that you have penned through your apostles and through your human writers by the inspiration of your spirit that is wasted, Lord. Everything is precious and to be cherished and to be obeyed and reflected upon. Help us to do that, Lord, that we would be a congregation that is committed to loving partnership with one another, that we are people, Father, who are prioritizing submission to your word and that we would be people who are accountable first and foremost to you, Lord, and to one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.